Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 53, The Three Whys of Addiction. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fusion Health Radio. I'm Anthony Santa, again in studio with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, how are you today? Great. Glad to have you here. Mm-hmm. How's things for you? Uh, things are going just well. And uh, I was really excited to get to the uh, microphones today because uh, when you told me what we were recording last week, I'm like, wow, that's actually going to be kind of something I want to hear. But wait a minute, I'm going to star in it. Ooh, I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> Getting all kind of freaked out by my own participation in my own podcast. Well, it is all about you and your secret comic book addiction. Yeah, perhaps it is. (laughs) Uh, The Three Wise of Addiction. Um, This is the uh, Fusion Health Radio podcast where uh, we talk about all kinds of interesting and wonderful things. Last week, we talked about, of all things, karma and karma, uh, a very different take on, um, I don't know, how people see things maybe. how, How would you sort of paraphrase what that podcast was about? In the West, we think of karma, and I want to say that with some kind of like kind of cowboy accent or something, just because I'm trying to make a point about, I don't know, words and definitions. But in the West, the word karma basically kind of means like reincarnation really sucks and God's a bit of a jerk, you know, just in the bigger sense of like, if we do something good, we're supposed to be entitled to something better. And if we do something wrong, we're now more or less inevitably going to be punished in some future sense. And it could be tomorrow you're going to stub your toe or you're going to be next incarnation born as a whatever you don't really want to be. <laughs> a snail. <laughs> some, you know. And when you go deep into the, you know, early indigenous culture that framed all of that, uh, in that language we actually would pronounce it kama. And it actually means a very different thing about the immediate awareness of consequences and intention and... Um, you know, it's, I think it would, uh, a good parallel would be to walk as if every step is a blessing or a prayer or an opportunity to move towards the betterment of all beings, or you could choose the other foot (laughs) and just crash into the world unconsciously, regardless of what happens to you or everybody around you. So it's mostly just an invitation to recognize, um, fundamentally the biggest patterns we lean into and rely on or take for granted or take as so solid that we just forget that we could choose differently because mm-hmm. the idea of karma or kama is you know in this moment you're moving with a momentum of decision making and intentions and uh, positive and negative experiences so given that you have that momentum and you know if you look behind you at the choices that have moved you towards, you know, some form of betterment or a, a lack of suffering and the choices that have caused more suffering. Um, you can sit there and, and wait for the, whoever in the universe has a clipboard that decides whether or not you're a good or bad person. Or, or you could look at the, the story of your life and realize you're the, actually the storyteller and it, it is your, you know, ethical opportunity to just shift your decision making and your intentions and your memory of what confidence might mean to you. Uh, into the the more sensitive and more empathic and compassionate place, mostly just for yourself, so that you can get through the next day, the next you know years and months. 
relying on a, a very internally guided sense of, of self and of confidence. Right? Mm-hmm. But when you, when you step back to the big, um, you know, I, I killed somebody in a car accident by accident or, you know, because I'm a bad guy or, or something. And for the rest of all of my incarnations, I'm going to be paying off that debt. I mean, that's so abstract and so punitive and so out of reach. I mean, most people would feel, I think, in, and this is a weird reaching context, but it would be akin to recognizing you're a domesticated animal. Like a cat or a dog or a... Well, some abstract, you know, being that brings you food and cleans up your crap is now going to beat the crap out of you relentlessly for incarnations to come because you had that, you know, gap of, of attention or something. Mm-hmm. And that that's a really very modern, very Western choice to view the world as this very uh, abstractly hierarchical and punitive place. Yeah. And the... Uh... Uh, the other concepts that you were sharing around uh, Kama and I guess the the non-Western view of what karma is. Um, well, dear listener, you're going to have to listen to that podcast. It's kind of hard to sort of describe what the whole thing is without actually going into the deep dive that we did with that. It's yeah, it was almost two hours thing, and there's a big parable that that's you know kind of now, nowadays classically told about all the incarnations you could have in a 1920s luxury liner, just as an example about how unconsciously and easily committed we are to the life we think we're supposed to live. You know, it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm a bricklayer, so <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was uh, um, a very powerful um, uh, podcast, I'd say, just because it, uh, the polarity or the the contrast between that kind of topic and um, other topics that we've talked about in the past, you know, uh, just good old, medical kind of biological stuff. And yeah. now, now we're just talking about <laughs> karma. It's a nice, nice to have a geek out on vitamin B12. And then it's to look at the, I mean, near the end of the podcast last week, we really did get into the, what you might call the kama of spiritual um, materialism. Like the way we actually look at, um, there's a new word for it now, virtue uh, signaling. Where, you know, you can speak about something in the world uh, by describing how you see it and using a confirmation bias that, you know, we have so many new terms in the last two years. I feel like I need a little Coles Notes dictionary for (laughs) memes and confirmation biases and stuff. But, I mean, my favorite part about that conversation with people is it does ask you in a very gentle way to just question, you know, is that really how you're going to frame your sentient relationship with whatever we uh, ascribe a spiritual life or the end of life or the next life thing to be. Because a lot of people, when they build those ideas over time through culture and then they, you know, consume them and ratify them within their own mind in some way, I mean, now you're locked in. I mean, yeah, how, how many truly uh, devoted religious people have you met, Anthony, that, you know, you realize that you might as well just you know, be quiet and listen to the sermon because that person will never change their frame of reference. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, I grew up with people like that. Yeah. They weren't necessarily religious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be about religion, but I mean, that's, that's sort of like the, the brittle pointy side of the idea of karma mm. is if you can't change what you're doing, it's going to keep happening. <laughs> if you can't think outside the box, enjoy the box, it's going to continue to be a really, really, you know, corner tight, dark and <laughs> echoey so, box. <laughs> so what you're saying is the karma of karma is that karma is always karma. 
<laughs> okay, let's stop talking about karma before we do. Before, Thank you. <laughs> before, before, before we really lose a, uh, all of our listeners out there uh, who turned in to hear something about addiction. The Three Whys of Addiction is the name of the podcast today. And um, when I heard you say that title, I thought of... Um, I mean, just on my way here, packing up all the gear, coming to uh, record today, um, I thought about all the things that I might be addicted to. And uh, I was laughing as I got in the car. I thought, oh, i got to put gas in the car. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm addicted to gas. Or I'm addicted, I'm addicted to what I get from gas. Well, you know, Cars, anyway. Cars and all that sort of stuff. So um, uh, I, was, I was laughing to myself, thinking of the things that I'm addicted to that aren't necessarily what other people might consider them to be addictions, like... Uh, drugs or alcohol or that sort of thing so um where do you want to start with the idea of uh, addictions uh maybe just defining it a little bit sure you know we we all need what we need to live we all need water and food and sleep and conditionally hugging and sex and you know all the other good things that make a, a life more livable and or more enjoyable podcasts podcasts well i mean without those things i <laughs> <laughs> It's right up there with sex. I'd be doing drywall. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I learned medicine by listening to podcasts. Just kidding. Um, so addiction, I think, is a very intuitive thing that we can all uh, respect in, in the sense that for whatever reason, people we know and hopefully still love or at least respect for what they're going through um, respond to certain aspects of life in a very compensatory way, right? Which is at a certain threshold of boredom, loneliness, stress, pain, you know, insomnia, other things that leave that person feeling like the next amount of whatever that experience they have is unbearable. You know, obviously a person in severe pain in the hospital uh, is often put into an actual induced coma, because it's just easier for their physiology to be marginally dead than to be under massive assault of pain-killing opiates, mm -hmm. which turn out to be addictive. So obviously we do have the need in the sense of, you know, medicine to compensate for certain symptoms that are in, in crisis. Um, so if we, if we look at that, you can say, oh, wow, I can totally see why Joe needs, you know, that, you know, you know, five milligrams of morphine because his gallbladder is going to explode and, or his appendix is going to explode. And the pain of that is literally making this person sweat bullets, mm -hmm. not literally bullets, but you can see a different kind of sweating on people when they're in severe pain because it's, um, a profound stress response, which is actually the same kind of, uh, physical expression people have when they're going through the DTs or delirium tremens. Uh, of withdrawal, right? So anyone who works around addiction recognizes the people who are in the midst of this are basically like the person in the emergency ward in such of some kind of pain or need to compensate for whatever that kind of pain is that they would do the same kind of things or make the same kind of, um, you know, complaints or the same kind of, have the, be experiencing the same kind of conditions who... Uh, had maybe burned, you know, 20% of their skin or something like that. So uh, for people who, ha who are listening to this, who have no relationship or maybe have a hard time empathizing with or accepting people who do suffer with addiction, just try and picture that on the inner side of the experience, at a certain point, these people would chew through a wall to, to get to a beer or, or to a whatever, 
not because it's about the beer so much as it's about the possible relief of their present state. And that's what we mean by compensator is right now is too not good. And anything else than not good would be better than not good. So give me something, anything. And we all hook into whatever it is that's around us. That's convenient that, well, I wouldn't say convenient, but that's, you know, within our, uh, attainable grasp. And, you know, that can define your entire existence if it goes too far. Would you, would you say that there are, um, addictions that are actually healthy versus, I mean, the way you describe it, uh, you're talking about like the, the medical situation for somebody needing, uh, some kind of the example, you use heroin in order mm -hmm. to deal with the excruciating pain. Um, but is there, uh, I don't know, is there, is, is there, that, that seems like it's a logical kind of, uh, physiological need or want for something. Um, and then there's everything else that we have, you know, you know, being the person that I am, I can have the clarity of mind to be addicted to something or not, mm -hmm. um, because I'm not in pain, but are there, um, distinctions with addictions in terms of something being healthy versus bad? Uh, I don't think I could honestly find a way to use the word addiction in the sense of health because addiction by itself means the end of that activity will be very, very negative. Okay. Right. So when we look at the idea of compensation, I mean, you're now uh, in a state of need. You have to compensate in one way or another. I mean, I know people, um, good people and all of that, but they use yoga or meditation in the same way other people might use alcohol or cannabis or uh, even pharmaceuticals. I mean, the number of people who abuse their pharmaceuticals is not surprising. It's astoundingly high, but it's also not surprising because if you can walk to your corner store druggist and get, you know, whatever amount of codeine or uh, other kind of sedatives or Ativan or something that's going to put you to sleep, um, you've now basically won the lottery of controlling your state. Hmm. And we'll come back to this later, but one of the fundamental aspects of indigenous like shaman, shamanism and even contemporary shamanism is the availability of state shift and ceremony and say plant medicines and sweat lodges and other things where the whole fundamental point is to challenge yourself and get through a difficult experience, say like a sweat lodge where you're sitting in a hut with a bunch of people at 140 degrees, you know, sweating bullets for another reason, you know, that, that, that changes, uh, your metabolism in a, in a pretty fundamental way. Obviously, if you're taking something like ayahuasca, it's going to literally blow open the, you know, doors and windows of whatever consciousness is and let the wind in <laughs> mm -hmm. and good luck with whatever happens to you. And, you know, it's good to, if you have had that experience to have lots of people to talk to about what, you know, what you remember of that experience, because I've seen that go badly for people too. But if I go back to the idea of compensation just for a minute, um, cause that, that's really what I think the, the word addiction is asking us to be aware of is that, you know, people just get too loaded up to, to live as themselves. What most people are trying to compensate from is, is a weird stretching out, um, of things. It could be the past and future. You know, you're, you're feeling particularly, uh, woeful about, you know, I'll bring up karma again, but how you've lived your life and, you know, the consequences. Cause most people who live with addiction kind of keep, um, losing things in their life. You know, like jobs and family and, and things like that. And the inevitable result is what most people in, in the circle of addictions call hitting bottom. You know, so here's a weird equation of being stretched out between two poles, past and future, stimulation and sedation, which are probably the biggest ones around uh, modern life. 
you know, because we're all supposed to go, go, go and drink lots of cappuccinos and shop, 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 and then sit down in front of the TV and shut up and consume information and get, you know, comfy in your lazy boy and eventually go to bed and rinse and repeat. And, you know, so we're, we're very comfortable with those bookends. It's just that they can get stretched out to the point, kind of like a guitar string, where it's going to feel like it's about to break, right? And that can happen in any relationship, in any working relationship. If it's you and money, you and the government, and the money you owe the government, or whatever. Once the world gets stretched out between, you know, the two poles that have you, at a certain point, you don't really care. I mean, the string's going to break. The world's probably judging you badly because you got so caught up in whatever mistakes you've made that, you know, now your life is all pulled apart in this way. It just makes perfect sense to try and, you know, knock yourself out. And maybe reset, kind of like rebooting your computer in the modern metaphor, to hopefully, at least hopefully, say, okay, I'm going to just knock myself out and, you know, shake it off and uh, try and let go of all of the things that I'm really compelled to worry about. And then maybe tomorrow, if I wake up, uh -huh, um, I can move on and at least try this with fresh eyes. Although I've never met anyone with a hangover that I would have described with as fresh eyes. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, that's the compensation is I can't be more effective in this because the more I stay in this, the worse it feels and the less patient I am. So it, it is a natural reflex, even amongst animals without language, to do anything you can to stop the, the inner frenzy. Interesting. Uh, I'm, uh, as you're describing that, I'm trying to still sort of, uh, I guess, quantify what addiction is in my own mind. And the, the the idea of um, you know addictions being either good or bad was one sort of question I had around that. The other one was: Is there uh, how do I say that? Are there addictions that are um, psychological or mental versus um, uh, physiological and uh, biological? Yes. So there's, there's a lot to that question. So I'm like, I'll just say yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And because I've had my own experience with, you know, my stomach telling me what it is I need to do. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my heart and my head telling me what it is I need to do around something. And I was just wondering if that was something that. Well, we're, we're going to get into all of that as we go. Now, I, won't, I do want to answer the question you asked a couple of minutes ago again, but in another way. No addiction is not healthy in the sense that. Uh, on the grander level of your organic physiology, you're doing a good thing. However, I would say all addiction is good because it's going to teach you about your foibles when you start to wake up and crawl out of it. And nothing else will do that for you or else it would have already happened. Like if you would have learned what you needed to learn in relationship or in high school or in the workplace or uh, in the typical fray of, um, you know, learning through mistake as we all do, if that was enough for you to get through whatever uh, way of identifying with the world or being traumatized by the world is that's defining your experience of yourself, right? If, if you would have found the lesson in the Qigong class or in the, you know, retreat you went on or, you know, that sailing trip you took or the rock climbing, you know, adventure that sort of changed your life, if that would have changed you fundamentally, that would have been it and enough and high fives and way to go. If it turns out that something deep in your character, your genetics, your family uh, style of uh, relating and dealing with problems, if you grew up in the model of, you know, just put a bucket over your head and hide for a minute, you're going to try that. 
It's inevitable. You've seen it. You've seen a person fight with it. There's a part of you that wants to be the one who actually figures it out unconsciously. You know, I'll be the one in my family who doesn't end up in this situation. And the only way you're going to know you can get through it is to get into it. And then you're stuck in it. And then hopefully you actually do get out of it because this stuff's complicated and it's hard. Mm. (laughs) But there's a lot of reasons why. But no matter who you are, if you have come into the world and you couldn't figure out your stuff in the non-addictive patterns of learning, it is kind of inevitable. If you're going to continue living, you will learn about yourself through addictive patterns of learning. And that's a good thing because the sooner you get, you know, into the, the inner world of the experience to own the, I don't know. And this, I'm, I mean, this is going to be a hard episode for people. Uh, cause I'm going to say some things that are very hard to hear. Um, there's a certain weakness and cowardice to addiction. It makes me think that, uh, but I just want to very quickly say that's the only place humans get stronger and braver and yeah. find their true courage. So we have to accept on the level of identification that we've got some foibles and that they're pretty serious and they could take you out. Yeah. But they're also the one thing that's like the, the fire for the Phoenix to rise from the ashes. So you're in it and, and welcome, you know, you're in it. And as a human being, as a spiritual warrior, as a sentient being with untapped resources, because if you've never looked for them, how could you possibly know if they're there or not? Hmm. Right. So again, it's, it's a huge crucible for people, but just to go back to your question, is addiction inherently good or bad? A bit of both, but you know, if you can get through it, you're going to become the person who's completely humble and patient and kind and compassionate to anybody else running through that game. Cause you, you've been through hell. I mean, how many, it's not a surprise to me as a clinician or as a, you know, an alcoholic who's sober, but who's, you know, been through that pit, uh, myself. If you've never been through that experience, you really have no idea what it's like. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's no surprise to me that uh, almost everyone who's been through that experience who has any aspiration to work with other people becomes an addictions counselor or goes to a retreat center or, you know, you know, holds an AA meeting or does, does whatever they can because you're one of the few, the proud and, and the, the willing to actually grow up and grow through that, you know, and, and what a resource to have because, you know, it's, you're not going to figure out in a book. I mean, there's lots of good books out there. There's lots of good podcasts or information mm-hmm. that are there, but you still have to do the work on the inside. Well, and, and that sort of brings me back to um, the idea that I was, I was trying to get across just a moment ago that my curiosity around something like addictions being either good or bad for you and whether or not it's all in your head or if it's all in your your body or your gut, like if it's just something you're thinking versus something that's actually, you know, um, based on chemicals and juices and whatever it is you got in between you. Well, I, I could, could explain in a cute kind of metaphor, the fundamental neurological component of, of addiction, because that's the easiest for people to actually kind of wrap their minds around and go, oh yeah, that really does make sense. Before you do that, okay. let, me, let me try to unpack this idea here. The, the, the idea that I'm, that I'm trying to get across is that um, whether or not addictions are good or bad for you was sort of um, fueled by the thought of... Um, I've seen people that I know that have been um, addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever it is that have come out the other end and are better people for it, right? So um, I was hoping that you would actually 
illustrated in some way to show that uh, addiction is good because it's a tool to teach you how not to do that anymore, which is, anyways, just the, the, the whole little loop my mind went in when you started talking about addictions, and here you are talking about it as well, so um, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very poignant thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've ever met anyone in the sense of clinical practice who isn't dealing with compensatory behavior in some way, whether or not they have a heart addiction and, and it's uh, ruining their life or their bank account or their family is, is not the same conversation, but uh, one leads to the other. Yeah. And, and in, in kind of in the fractal sense, they're, they're both the same thing. One's just a much tighter uh, and, and more consequential environment. Whereas the other one, it's kind of like flirting with that whole thing going, Oh, you know, I, I have my little hobby. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, uh, I interrupted you. Um, you were about to offer some kind of a definition. Well, it's more of a description. So description, when you look at the fundamentally the brain, the gut, the nervous system, uh, when you look at the neural pathways and the, the way the nervous system and well, basically essentially how neurology works is you have a little in magical environment we call the synaptic cleft, which is between uh, two different neurons. Okay. Right. And the easiest way to kind of image it would be uh, a snake. It's got a tail and it's got a head. The head is always hungry uh, and the tail on like most animals does not poop out poop. It poops out the information, uh, that was swallowed, but in maybe, maybe in a regulated way or with some co-signaling that, that, um, maintains proper, uh, transmission of that information through the entire nervous system. But what's important is you have one snake, you know, kind of feeding the other snake, uh, and they look like snakes in a way, if you, if you're trying to like draw it on a piece of paper. But when we zoom into the relationship with snake A and snake B, uh, we're going to kind of shift our, our animal species metaphor for a second and try and imagine a mama bird in a nest with a bunch of baby birds. So mama bird flies away to get worms. And in this case, it's going to be a neurotransmitter like say serotonin or dopamine. Mama bird comes back into the nest and starts feeding the baby birds. And these are the receiving neurons. Right. So if you're a person who has a chemical hobby <laughs> where you keep providing yourself an excessive amount of worms, whatever neurotransmitter that, that substance, you know, provides you in excess, uh, it gives you a pretty profound sh uh, shift of state, which is obviously why it's considered compensatory because you're now feeling very different. Um, but your brain naturally says, oh, I guess it's time to make sure I have enough baby birds for all those worms. And you're, you're, there's a thing called neuroplasticity where your mind is always changing around what you're doing, your behavior, your, your, you know, sleep cycle, your arguments and stuff. So now you're a person who's walking around every day, all day. Uh, and let's just say for fun that for every mama bird you have, you have five baby birds and the average is three for some things and one for everything else. And, you know, whatever reason you know, go to visit friends and, you know, they're, they have slightly different hobbies than you do. And you decide that instead of keeping your particularly, I don't know, whatever your little grab bag would be, you decide to go on the natch to visit your friends and not, um, you know, feed your birds. So imagine lying there on day one with 500 trillion million or some crazy number of little baby birds screaming physically into your brain and your nervous system and your bones and your muscles writhing in physical anguish because they're going to starve to death. 
Right. So that that's that's the easiest way to look at it, in in the sense of why it's so overwhelmingly, unbelievably painful and difficult when you're no longer able to access that substance, right? Mm-hmm. And the process of basically debriding your neurophysiology or getting rid of the baby birds takes, one aspect takes about a month, another aspect takes about three months, the other aspect takes about two years, right? So that's sort of why in a a lot of uh, treatment facilities, the minimum stay is 28 days because magically around uh, hypoglycemia and insulin sensitivity, which drives a lot of addiction neurologically, you can't reset that in any shorter period of time. It's just, that's just in the menu of how the humans work. (laughs) Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so the, the topic or the title of the podcast, the three whys of addictions, I mean, we were talking about them being, um, kind of what they are. So maybe we've been talking about the what's of addiction, <laughs> but how, how, do, how do you see the whys? What is... Uh... Well, I'm going to get into the whys in a bit. I think I want to play with the hows a little bit more. Oh, okay. So one thing that if, you know, obviously if you're listening to this and you know, or you are a person who's concerned about overly compensatory behavior and or addiction, one thing that we're all dealing with is just the fairness or unfairness of genetics. So when you're looking at genetics, uh, the easiest way to kind of just frame it is how many millennia has your genetic ancestors had access to alcohol? I think my ancestors actually invented it. Yeah. So if you're anywhere from around the Mediterranean, you're basically about 7,000 years of regular use of, you know, um, just fermented basically fruit, Mm -hmm. you know, and eventually fermented grains and all that kind of fun stuff. But... That gives, um, and this is an interesting thing, uh, in the sense of like how statistics work, because the number of people who misuse alcohol in that genetic population of the world is pretty high because it's been in the culture for so long. People have wine with lunch and then wine with dinner and then, you know, whatever goes on. But those people genetically are more adapted to alcohol in the sense of actually becoming addicted to it to the point where it might take you out. But... 10% of people from that part of the world will still completely destroy their life with alcohol if they take it far enough. And so, sorry, are you saying that that higher is number than it is, uh, say here in North America? Oh God, no. Those, the people from Mediterranean have the less, the least likely chance to destroy their lives, but it's still 10% of people. You can basically say, if you take alcohol too far, that's going to be the rest of your life is going to be resolved, revolved around whether or not you're ever going to drink again, hmm. right? Or whether or not you're going to drink in the next day. Right. And that's 10% of people. And that's the best statistics anyone has on the planet. It's like, oh. yeah, you got a 10% chance. Wow, lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> you move into uh, other parts of Europe, other parts of the world where it's only been maybe a thousand, two thousand years where a consistent use of alcohol, not just medically, but socially and uh, recreationally, their stats are about 30%, right? You know, and that, that's like, again, just rest of the world that, you know, didn't have that much, uh, you know, that many centuries of a consistent kind of cultural setup, uh, or it was too far away from, you know, fruit and hard, hard agriculture to have all that kind of stuff lying around to like fiddle around with how to make alcohol. Mm-hmm. 
right? So that's again, 30% of people in more Northern European and or uh, other cultures that, you know, just never really thought alcohol was that good of an idea. Say most of the Muslim world doesn't, you know, participate in alcohol. Uh, and then maybe genetically you have that background and your family has some split away from uh, Islam and you become um, a secular Muslim or you just give up on being Muslim, which can be tricky. Um, but then you maybe get into alcohol and again, you're one of the, you know, people genetically who, you know, it's a higher statistic that you're going to have trouble because culturally and, and on an evolutionary level, it's just never really been a popular thing. And then you look at people, uh, with more indigenous ancestry, uh, like myself and, um, because most indigenous people in the world never even thought of having the time to stay still long enough to figure out alcohol because they were migratory. I mean, they've had access to that because of Europeans for maybe 100, 200, 300 years of uh, genetic potential to adapt to it. And right now that's 80 to 85% of people with that ancestry. If you get hooked into alcohol, it's going to define the rest of your life, if not destroy it. What a contrast. Yeah. Wow. 80 to 90%? 80 to 90% of people, if they drink enough, trigger the brain allergy, which we can get into a bit, um, which is what those people are more sensitive to. Uh, we haven't adapted to that kind of clearance uh, in the brain. So now the chemistry is just like an allergy. It's just the allergy makes you so driven by kind of the inner itchiness of, of the chemistry of, of that kind of a process that you will do anything to feel different including jump off of a bridge, which is why suicide on reserves is so high. Wow. And it's not just alcohol, right? Because at a certain threshold of compensatory behavior, uh, there's a whole biochemistry kind of milieu of, of different kind of stress and immune system function because um, you're basically uh, experiencing a very new kind of stress and a new kind of stretch out in, in, in the world or in time that's very new to your physiology. Because you think of indigenous people, it's always been this year. It's always been this moon. It's always been this day. You know, to be living in a world with all these abstract, high consequence, stretched out problems to solve, it's just a very, very different reality. So again, people have to compensate or, or regulate from that kind of stress differently. So that's one of the hows is, who's your people? And uh, how is that going to go for you? Because that's where you're going to start. Right. So if you want type in to the good old interwebs, you know, alcohol addiction and, you know, uh, Slovenian people or something, and it'll give you a pretty good idea of what the stats are for you. Right. And again, alcohol is sort of the ubiquitous one in the world now because it's for sale everywhere. And, you know, kids get it from probably the age of 14, um, on average to try it out. I think I had it from the age of eight when I was told to go downstairs and get a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little, little hands could carry a bottle of wine. Make yourself useful. Go get me a bottle. And luckily you've got the 10% genes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've also got an eight-year-old palate that goes, ew, this stuff is gross. Yeah, it's kind of gross. Yeah. You know, so again, there's also different kinds of alcoholism or different kinds of addiction. So I'm going to pick alcohol because again, it's the easiest one for all of us to kind of share as the, I don't know, Common denominator? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's something like that, the common denominator for how all of us are going to deal with every other kind of addiction because mm. it's, you know, addiction is pretty a, pretty much a patterned thing. So it's a similar thing with statistics that when a person does become pretty committed to alcohol, as an example, 
Um, once you're into it, again, there's that percentage of how many people are going to destroy their lives. And then there's the number of people that are going to commit to being what's called a functional alcoholic, right? And then there's what you would call maybe a highly functional alcoholic, and then there's more of the binge drinking alcoholic. Um, and then there's people who just find, you know, oh yeah, I have a bit of wine with my meal, or I don't, and it doesn't matter. So again, with respect to the kind of how or how it looks, there are people who are so deeply embedded that they're hiding bottles of, of alcohol or whatever substance they like in and around their house or their car or their office or their gym bag or whatever, just so they know it's there. And that's a, when, when you start hiding alcohol, that, that's pretty much the number one sign you're slipping from functional to completely ready to destroy your life because you're willing to destroy your relationships because you're already lying to everybody because no one knows that, you know, when you go to the bathroom to freshen up every 15 minutes, you're, you know, doing whatever you're doing in, in there between the towels, right? So uh, that that's a really big deal. There are a lot of people who are highly functional. I mean, when I was drinking, it was basically, I was kind of like in a mode of research and raising a kid and uh, doing other things. So I wasn't, you know, in the back alley trying to lick the bottom of the bottle and, you know, whatever. It was more like, oh, I've got to sit down and, you know, mark some essays. So I'm going to pour a drink. And, and then it became kind of just a habit, but in, in the sense of day to day. And then it became kind of like, I don't like today. Today isn't as nice because I don't have my little, you know, ice clinky, um, reminder that the day's coming to an end. And then for a couple of years, it got to the point where I was like, okay, I don't really feel good unless I know when I get home, I can have a drink and then take care of my, you know, my family stuff. And then when everything's settled down, have another one and maybe have another one and then go to sleep and wake up on time and go to work and show up and teach classes and pay bills and, uh, see patients and, you know, write books or whatever. So I never got to the place where I was going to take myself out. But it was always in that, that sort of range of functional. And the reason I bring up that experience is if you're rocking that out right now and feeling pretty good about yourself, take a moment and notice something. We call that being a functional alcoholic because you're this close to dysfunction. Like you take one week and you overdo it, then what's going to happen? And how many years can any of us, and I'm saying this from my own experience, keep doing that before the slow burn damage is going to damage you even more than what a bender would do to you? Hmm. Because that's what happens to a lot of people on the functional side is you get to a point where you start noticing you can't function as well. And then you start dosing your medicine or your addiction. And then, you know, you have to take breaks because it's killing you. And then, you know, at a certain point, you know, it, it's actually, you're actually more likely to do severe damage, you know, in that way, because you keep doing the same thing over months and years instead of getting the message that you can't keep doing this anymore. It's very interesting. I mean, I, I think of my own family and how, um, you know, I was shown what alcohol was when I was a kid. Like I said, it was uh, wine on the table all the time. Um, I think I was raised by a functional alcoholic and he's 89. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a glass or two of wine, um, mind you, they're small glasses. They're not like, you know, uh, nine ounce glasses or six ounce glasses, whatever they serve you in a restaurant. Uh, maybe like a glass of wine, if you if you measured it all out uh, at lunch and at dinner and um, every day, didn't matter what day of the week it was. Yeah, but I don't know if I would call it being a functional alcoholic in, in the sense that um, when it's a part of your culture, and again, being of the you know the the lucky people, like maybe not lucky, I guess, because <laughs> hard to say if you're you're lucky, you can drink more alcohol than the rest of us before it kills you. <laughs> 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 Woohoo! Um, but 
if you have the genetics where you're not likely to get hooked into the heart addiction, mm -hmm. then the experience of it is just, this is just how we eat. Okay. Whereas if you come home from work and the first thing you do is, you know, very unapologetically and abruptly get past your social obligations to go into a room by yourself and chug back whatever it is you like. That's compensatory behavior. Okay. Ha having a nice meal that you've had every day of your entire life with something is relatively harmless compared to other kinds of alcohol is, you know, homemade red wine. <laughs> um, th that, that's something else, right? But I wouldn't suggest, you know, to ignore it. It's just ask yourself, what do you feel like the moment before? Mm -hmm. So here, here's a... Um, just for imagery, one of the first things we get people to do when they're trying to sort this out is to go and sit down and, you know, get a journal, piece of paper, put your bottle. And if it's another kind of addiction, your, you know, your heroin, you know, gear and whatever else you're going to do and sit there for 20 minutes before you, you know, say yes to what you're going to inevitably probably say yes to and just write down what you're, you're thinking and, you know, how itchy you are on the inside and what you're actually upset about and what you think is going to happen and whether or not you think you get away with, you know, taking half as much. And if you try and focus on taking half as much of it, turns out that makes you do twice as much or, cause you, you do kind of have to introduce yourself to the fact you are losing control of yourself. Mm-hmm if you haven't already completely lost control. So, uh, you're going to need to do a little bit of investigation on, um, your particular brand of, you know, me versus this compensatory thing that I'm allowed to buy pretty much anywhere, or I get from my friend in the back alley, or maybe not your friend, the evil demon who's <laughs> coerced you into <laughs> wasting your life in that way. Interesting. You know, but again, it's, it's just, a. I just want to keep framing the the bigger picture of the whole thing because it's so easy to just sort of go black and well white and just say, well, yeah, you know, you you just screwed up your life and that makes you a stupid person and you got weak character and whatever. And regardless of whether or not that might be true on one level, I mean, and now what? You know, you know, give a brother a hand. You know, help help. We could probably be a lot more helpful to each other. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I mean, I would throw this out there as, as a social experiment idea, although I don't think it'll ever happen. Wouldn't it be interesting is as a presently fractured society, we kind of talked about that a few weeks ago with the Jordan Peterson thing. Wouldn't it be interesting if we just picked one thing? Let's just pick addiction. Never mind whether or not, uh, you know, we need to make big decisions about anything else in our society right now besides solving some really bad social habits like our relationship with people who have addiction and the fact that we permit you know, most addictive things to just go on, uh, as if it's just somebody else's fault. And you look at the countries that have legalized all, uh, illicit drugs and they, they've cut their, you know, addiction problem down 25%. You know, you start putting together treatment facilities and clean needle facilities and other stuff. You start to see this, the cost on society go way down. But for the people who don't respect how hard this is and what how deep of an illness this is from a medical point of view, they just get pissed off because we're spending money on people who aren't strong enough in their character to keep it together. And it's like, yeah, I think they went past that part. Mm -hmm. Right. So what happens if, what would happen if we picked as a society addiction as the one thing we're all going to talk about and help each other out with until we can leave it behind? I mean, that, that would change our entire society because we start talking to each other about an actual problem that <laughs> means something. Somewhere there's a bad joke about dealing with addiction with your friends and by chatting with them on Facebook. 
Well, I'm not sure social media is the avenue for resolving addiction. Social media is addiction, I no, think. No kidding. Um, so a couple of other things about how. Yeah. I'll get to them, but go ahead. No, no, no. I was, I was just going to encourage you to go on. I didn't want to side rail it with a bad joke about Facebook. <laughs> well, if anything, anything's going to help us as individuals experience the choice point moment of compensation and uh, confirmation bias and identity kind of games. Because that's what we're always doing is we're trying to confirm whether or not how we think and feel about how we fit into the world actually works for us. Because we're primates and that's got to work for us. But, you know, with social media, it's, you know, every flick of your finger or scroll, flicker, whatever they call that, it's, you know, one more leap into the abyss of whether or not what you think is actually uh, as cool as what other people think. Mm. Well, and I was more um, making that comment just based on the fact that I think, um, I'll speak personally, my brain can go on pause just because Facebook, you know, I'm on Facebook scrolling and at some point my brain just gets... I don't know, stupid, and I don't really know what I'm looking at anymore. It's, it's funny for me to reflect on this, actually, in this moment, because I'm thinking back when I was really kind of at that point in my life where I was like, okay, I'm clearly not making the choices I need to make, but I'm clearly um, kind of stuck on this trajectory of where is this going to go? And that was about the point when social media was actually really new and becoming a big thing in my life, because I was thinking about moving more into the online space and, you know, how all that works. So I was kind of like, oh, well, I'll learn about this and, and uh, check it all out. And uh, at the same time, having a drink in my hand, I think I can honestly say in this moment, reflecting back, it, it was like the perfect storm of bad combinations. Yeah, wow. You know, because you just sit there and you have a drink and then you scroll away and then the mind kind of bends to where, you know, where it goes with things like alcohol. Uh, yeah, I, w I would say given all the addictive chemistry we have in the modern world from things we call food to things we call, you know, legal uh, drugs like alcohol to, you know, conditionally legal things like cannabis to things that are still illegal to all the very pro-legal stuff like pharmaceuticals i think when you add those especially in kids with something like social media especially like facebook i mean we we're, we're changing the fundamental structure of the human brain now right uh, around that compensatory thing which is why kids i think need safe spaces because they're you know they're 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 living you know in a way i think and i'm sort of making this up in the moment but i don't think it's completely inaccurate to say Children raised on social media and screens are probably going to live the lives of people who grew up around about a third generation hardcore alcoholic family. Just in the sense of how much time you spend alone. Wow. Uh, that's a pretty uh, dire prediction. Well, I think it's, I mean, just asking people, I think it's time, like I said, if, if, if we as a society decided to like make amends with, with ourselves and each other, I think step one would be Let's just stop promoting things that diminish our capacity to be free because mm -hmm. addiction is the opposite of freedom. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So a couple of things for context in the sense of how to look at this because it's it's a very shaming, very embarrassing, very difficult thing. I think that's the hardest part about addictive behavior is when you wake up one morning and realize, oh my God, I've turned into my uncle or whoever you really didn't want to turn into. Um the weight and the heaviness and the, the embarrassment and the shame of ever having to communicate that to anybody else is going to probably add five more years to what you're doing to yourself. Because again, as you know, social primates were like, I want to fit in, but now I'm one of the bad, you know, mangy monkeys who everyone's going to have to deal with in a weird way. Cause I'm an alcoholic or I'm a, 
you know, I have some other addiction. And so you're saying the stress of being addicted, the stress of the realization of being addicted is? The stress of the shame you project onto what other people are going to think about you. Because shame is just a projection, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, guilt is something you actually did. Shame is just something you're afraid other people are going to think about you. And, and so that's on top of all of the, uh, you know, the detriment of the addiction itself. Yeah. But I mean, that that's the hardest part for people. Right. It's like, oh man, everyone's going to think I'm a piece of crap. And I think I'm going to go to the, you know, liquor board and <laughs> take care of that particular thought stream for a month. And, you know, then, you know, you start all over again and feel even worse about it because now you do feel you're like you're spiraling into the, you know, the pit and you're losing control. And the biggest trigger is, is other people finding out, which is why people hide bottles of booze in the laundry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a, f a friend who was doing that was, uh, uh, came to visit, uh, was there for a week, and um, when they left, I found I mean, two, three bottles stashed in my place. I'm like, yeah. where the, did these come from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you ever if you ever find yourself there, get some help. Call call a, a like. There's all these like one eight hundred lines and stuff. Go to go to a meeting. You don't have to like join a cult. I mean, you just go and sit there and listen to other people who've you know moved through that threshold and just get a sense of what it's like for them. I think in this case, uh, the uh, guilt and embarrassment and shame uh, was um, like a concrete bunker around that person. Yep. And they couldn't get over it nope. or past it nope. uh, to help themselves. Nope. But if you ever have a chance to sit down with that person and, you know, I don't know, maybe just send them a link to this podcast and just say, I love you. And if you ever want to talk to me about what you're experiencing, I would be very willing and patient to listen. Yeah, because without that, I mean, everyone's just like, yeah, well, I'm already, I'm already the person with the stenciled letter on my chest of shame and guilt, right? So it's it's too late for me. That did happen, yeah. or has happened, and um, it's the place where um, they're okay talking about it with me, but then they go back into their bunker when they go into their own world and their own family. Step one. Yeah. Step one is all you get. And I, I would say this to also to people who are living, you know, in some proximity to a person with serious addiction, you know, in the sense that you can tell they're in a bunker, you may have to actually give them and yourself some space. Like yeah. to, to literally not, not so much to do the, the modern kind of millennial thing of just, no, oh, you're a toxic person. I'm never going to talk to you again because I can't handle your stuff, right? Which I'm kind of making fun of something because it's, it's a bit too easy just to, uh, you know, randomly decide. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm too precarious for you, which is probably going to turn you into an addict because now you're compensating it so we can be too sensitive to it. But at the same time, you know, you can tell people, you know, until you're actually ready to get into right relationship with yourself, your substance abuse, and with me, I'm going to, you know, for my own, you know, needs, create a certain kind of distance. And, you know, if we have to get together and, I don't know, negotiate whatever it is we need to uh, around the mundane parts of life, we can do that. I can love you and I can still be your friend or your relative or your work, you know, um, colleague or something. But I've made a decision for myself that I need some emotional distance. Yeah. Because if, you know, because otherwise the codependent side of this is going to rail you into their particular problem. And I think that that might be a whole other episode is codependency because it's, I don't know, tricky. Anyway, contextually, there's a couple of really cool things to look at. Um, not in the sense of an excuse, but in the sense of a, a model of uh, looking at the world. 
that for people who are not addicted to something, but are trying to figure out someone who is, or if you are addicted to something and trying to frame your life around it, so you don't just feel like you should be squished like a bug, because that's where a lot of people end up. Um, it's nice to have a bit of a, I don't know, quick parable or, uh, I don't know, and this kind of fits back to karma, but in a different way. So there's a view amongst, uh, I don't know, certain indigenous tribes, uh, and it's what they call a true enough, right? Cause they, sorry, true enough, true enough. So instead of saying, we know the truth, we, we were down with God and he's given us the, the, the special papyrus that gives us the rules. And now we're going to take over the world and tell everyone how it works. Uh, these people just said, well, we've kind of come up with this way of looking at the whole thing that kind of works. We're not sure if it's right. Cause we don't have any way to be sure, which is why most indigenous cultures call the bigger picture, the big mystery, because it's kind of like, well, I have no idea, but this is kind of making sense, but I don't know. <laughs> There's no way to know. I mean, even with microscopes and how do you know? <laughs> right. So the true enough is that in a certain way, and it's never literally, you know, nailed down because again, it's just true enough that at the moment of conception or at the moment of birth, or, uh, when you start to move and interact with the world on your own, or once you get language, you know, or once you're eight, it doesn't really matter. But depending on the culture you're talking to, there's a certain point at which the true enough says you start to enter into your life and your body as a conscious being with such energy and such commitment that you have to leave the mystery or the spiritual universe behind you. And then you forget everything that you knew about the universe. But before you forget, and time works differently in, in these cultures in the sense of what you'd be doing in the spirit world, before you actually like enter in at the moment of conception or birth or language or whatever, you have a conversation with all the other spiritual beings around you that say, look, I need this much trauma, this much pain, this much loneliness, this much love, this much sex, this many kids, this much addiction, this kind of bankruptcy, that kind of snake bite, a couple of, you know, animal bites or whatever to give me some badass cars or something so I can, <laughs> you know, regale the young people when I'm old. We make all of those kind of calls to action, you could say, before we're actually forgetting where we come from. And then for the rest of your life, you're getting exactly what you asked for. But from that cultural perspective, you're here as an individual to help solve the collective good. So if you go back to the pre-individual kind of jump into life, and we're still in the kind of council of elders or whatever happens in the sky, I'm trying to keep this kind of <laughs> metaphorical because it's not meant to be literal. Uh, you know, you have to accept that, you know, you need this. We all need this. And if you can get through whatever it is you've called into being for yourself in terms of divorces and bankruptcies and addictions or whatever, thank you so much for doing the work for the rest of us. But that's why you needed to have this experience because on some level before you got here, you said, okay, throw me this much suffering. I think I can handle it. Right. And if I can handle it with any kind of poise and wisdom and, and, and good things, then at the end of my life, that kind of bounces back into the, what we would call the collective unconscious. So now everyone's that much more wise, more patient, more kind, more compassionate, because that's the essence of all spiritual traditions that aren't just real estate operations, which is life is suffering. You're here to do the best you can for everyone. Hmm. And in some traditions that includes sort of all beings in all time. So. Again, it's just a nice little kind of affirmation of, well, if that's true enough, just for five seconds, 
And everything you're doing is exactly what was meant to happen. And in fact, it's exactly what you needed to happen, right? Because you asked for this from that spiritual kind of perspective. So the shame, the guilt, the oh, all that stuff is like, oh, well, that changes things a bit. It takes the bite out of it. I well, think. I mean, I'm not saying we start a cult and everyone has to believe that. I'm just saying that from a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek perspective, it sort of says, yeah, well, obviously that's true too, no matter how you look at it. Right. Because on some level, we're all kind of more conscious and more sentient and more wise than we let ourselves see ourselves as, maybe as a egoic protection device. But it gives you permission to go, right. Yeah, and if I think about that, about the other people that I know, this is so important for most people in North America, especially. Well, I'd say any, any Westernized culture, you know, like say Australia, UK and places like that. Um, well, all of Europe. If you're trying to figure out this kind of a thing, start with a person you think of that's worse off than you, but just barely. Okay. Right. You got to pick somebody who's like, oh yeah, we're on the same track, but you know, that's Billy Corrigan and you know, his family's had this problem for 900 years and you know, he's just swinging in the, you know, back alleys for money or whatever. But if he you know, on some spiritual level called into being for all of us that much trouble and he's carrying the burden and he's, you know, doing the work and doing his best. The next time you bump into that person, you're going to look at them completely differently just because you're like, all right, man, I'm going to buy you some tomato shoes and maybe some B vitamins and something else here and get you back into the fray. Cause now I get it. You know, we're all doing this for all of us. Right. And we're all doing this even if it looks like we're, you know, being driven over by a tractor, you know, at least we're in the field of battle of, of the uh, gradual improvement of life and society and, and human beings. You know, you, you, this is the, uh, I guess the Eastern idea that you're presenting here, or maybe the more spiritual perspective, but I think of the phrase, um, you're not given anything that you can't handle. Yeah, but it's going to feel like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to feel like it, but I think that it in of itself is something from the Bible. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I don't know. The, the idea of, um, you know, we're, we're, we're put here, um, by our own means kind of thing. It's like, you know, when you, people will joke, it's like, you know, like, well, Billy wasn't in the, uh, you know, when, 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 before he was born, he forgot to, uh, get anything out of the brains line, but he got everything in the good looks line. And <laughs> right. before he went down that tube and he came into being kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of concept. So, I mean, I think we're all looking for a way to frame what we're doing with our lives and what other people are doing our, in our lives that it provides meaning and patience and forgiveness. Because, I mean, that's that's kind of step one is, you know, I forgive you. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I'm interested in the bigger picture of this. And I'm going to try and provide some kind of interaction or support with patience. You know, I, I have people that I've been working with for probably 20 years who you know, are still playing, you know, much better off than they were when we first met, but you can still see that they're when in from native cultural kind of modern terminology, we call it slippery feet. You know, a person's kind of sideways and you can see that, you know, given a, a certain amount of conflict or responsibility or intensity, they're, they're just going to sort of slip off over to the side and, you know, crash into things a little bit, uh, cause they haven't really found a grounded way to be in the world. Hmm. So here, here's another quick, weird kind of context and this comes actually from my ancestors um uh, there's a ceremony that we haven't really practiced very much since Europeans showed up because it has in the european context to do with witchcraft and from our point of view it has nothing to do with that it has to do with people who are just 
acting out. So I'll be quick, but there's, there's a little tiny backstory and then we'll get into the three whys. So the, the backstory basically is that sometimes, um, well, a little bit farther back. So the Dinech people or the Navajo people headed basically from Northern, you know, Canada all the way down South, maybe 900 years ago, uh, long story as to why. Um, and then eventually about 500 years later, they became landlocked, uh, around, um, kind of Arizona and a high plateau. And then they started homesteading and doing orchards and, you know, farming sheep. And actually the word Navajo comes from Nabijo, which means they stole our sheep because we stole the Pueblo people's sheep or the Tewa people's sheep. Um, we have an even funnier name from the Hopi. I can't remember how to say it in Hopi, but it means head clubbing in our heads. That, that's what they call us. Because the, the, we came down there freaking out from what they, the backstory is that they thought that an ice age was coming and certain native populations are still aware that these things happen. They still remember them. So they're very, very precariously always running away from ice ages. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Anyway, so that's how that all that happened. But once they became landlocked and uh, started living in Hokan, which is like a log house and you know, imagine having like all of your entire oral history and, and, you know, call it race memory as being a migratory person. And now you're supposed to live in a house forever next to a bunch of other people in a house or a Hokan or like basically now you're law and luck. And in that language, actually the, the word we use for that kind of existence is which is the people who live in the same place all the time and walk around in circles. I was going to say that would be a little, um, crazy making. Exactly. And the crazy making is actually what they call a shihlet, uh, which is a kind of frenzied madness, right? And so mm-hmm. a lot of young people instinctually would just sort of basically bust out of the, the homesteading and eventually the reservation when eventually they became reservations. But this goes back hundreds of years. So this was before that. Young people would go off and get into all kinds of trouble because like good little cavemen and women, they just could not sit still in a house. <laughs> so they're just like, I have no memory of how to do this. I need to be out, you know, wandering. So they go off on, on these great wandering times and then eventually come back to the, you know, the Hokan or the, you know, home of their people. And, um, then they would have this big ceremony to try and welcome them back and to try and clean them off for all of the karma or all of the you know, bad stuff that happened or all the extra kids in the world or whatever else is going on. And, uh, it was called an ashita ceremony. And the context was that you've probably eaten something in your life, like a deer liver that was probably had some poison mushrooms in it or something. And you've been running around doing all of this stuff because you had this frenzied madness from, you know, bad deer liver and, you know, magic mushrooms or something. So what we're going to do is have this big ceremony and we're going to make you deliriously ill and you're going to throw up a lot. And you're going to hallucinate a bit and we're going to carry, take care of you for a few days as you freak out. And during that process of puking, you're supposed to have had the experience. And this is how the ceremonies are kind of working to give yourself a confirmation bias, if you will, in the modern sense that you have thrown up the toxins. Now you're probably not that person anymore. So we're going to all hang out with you for a year and watch how you interact with the, the people in the village. And if you turn out to be a pretty okay person, we're probably going to start welcoming you, welcoming you into more, you know, clan meetings or associations. And when I say clan, I'm talking about indigenous clans, by the way. <laughs> not, not the blood through the crypts? <laughs> well, I was thinking more like the guys with the white sheets on their head, but okay. <laughs> when I said clan meeting, I was like, that could probably go <laughs> anyway. <laughs> right. So, so the essential thing is like in shamanism, sometimes you have to go through a huge, you know, physical rite of, of, of puking and freaking out. 
And again, the context is, well, you ate some poison and that turned you into a bad person. Now you're going to travel around and make a mess. And when you finally come home, we're going to get that poison out of you. And then you're going to be okay. Right? So it's a big part of how addiction is, is sorted out in, in like what we call the restorative justice processes and stuff, which is, yeah, people can get into some really weird, call it chemistry. Uh, and then you have to do some really intense chemistry to free them up of the weird chemistry and then they'll be okay. So if I look at back at all the puking I've done in ayahuasca ceremonies, and last year I did that iboga ceremony where I threw up every 42 minutes for 36 hours straight. I was bored. I charted. <laughs> I wasn't bored at all, actually. It was pretty intense. But interesting to me that all over the world, the shamanic response to addiction is, well, we're going to have to blow your mind open and make you puke up something wrong with you, and you're going to see it come out of you if it's the violence of being molested as a kid. You're going to throw that up or whatever. So again, there's some context that's been going on since the least sophisticated cultures in the world have been handling, you know, people who are too hooked into compensatory behavior. It's interesting that there's that uh, uh, reference to the sort of physical aspect of whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, like the the poison in you and that sort of stuff. Uh, it makes me think of um, crazy things that uh, I, I guess Western ideas or whatever it is, where you know they'll. Uh, the friend of mine is always uh, fond of saying the expression "pray the gay away." Oh right, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is uh, maybe a different attack altogether but that sort of thing of uh, we're going to do something kind of um i don't know uh deliberate and obscure um to, to help you with this affliction whatever the heck it is uh, and in, in this case as you're describing it it's like you know you've got slippery feet or wandering feet or whatever kind of feet there we're gonna just tie you down for a little while and make you puke it all out <laughs> well, you're gonna lie down on the ground with <laughs> no use for your feet because yeah, and those kind of medications, walking is pretty much ruled out. Yeah, but I, I would think that that whole process of, of doing that in that culture um, made more sense than the sort of uh, cursory kind of humor that we're sort of throwing at it from here, because to them that was you know you're they're a lot more connected to the planet and 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 the world because they were constantly walking around in it as opposed to us, which is like oh I got a little bit of dirt on my on my pants, I better brush that off, you know. Yeah. And also in that context, I mean, if you did come back to your tribe after, you know, 15 years of making a bit of a mess uh, in the world, it is still life or death. You know, these people either welcome you back and clean you off and reintegrate you into that world, or it's fine, time for you to go to a different world. Hmm. Right. And that could be a different tribe. It could be living as a hermit or, I mean, there's so many crazy stories about what happens when people are banished, you know? Yeah. But, uh, well, banishment is death. You know, so it's a great parable because it has to do with reintegration into connection. Because in, in indigenous, present indigenous uh, healing traditions, we actually call alcohol and a lot of other substances the great separators. Because they separate you from your problem. Right. And then from anything external to you and your particular um, separation device. And eventually from your family and then from yourself. And at a certain point when your goal is to separate yourself from yourself, you're, you, know, you could say you already have one foot in the grave. Like you're just trying to find your way out of here. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is this idea of, you know, separation. Because wow. the opposite is to reintegrate into your family, you know, your tribe or your workplace or your community or your church or, you know, whatever it is that's there. Because that's, that's the real thing. I mean, why do you need to compensate so much? Because you can't handle what 
is around you. And that doesn't make you unnecessarily frail or broken. It just means now it's time to figure out how to do that thing better. Yeah, to uh, maybe be a little bit more connected as opposed to disconnected. Yeah, and that's that's why all, you know, yeah. basically all therapy is all group. It's about group. Go to AA, sit and talk to people. Right, so, right. So real quick about moving into the sort of therapeutic side of the conversation. Um, AA is a really, really great place to start because you're going to learn a, a really, I don't know, you're going to learn to ask yourself some really good questions. And so you're going to learn to rec recognize that with respect to reintegration with your family or people you've harmed in your life, it's going to be a little bit um, of, of a gradual process. And that's why they have like 12 steps and stuff to really give people a really clear sense of, okay, oops, <laughs> kind of fell on my face and everyone can tell. And it's time for me to try and reintegrate step by step. And, you know, they have some really clear guidance and chances to sit and talk to each other and actually say, hi, I'm Michael and I'm alcoholic. Because until you can say that out loud to people you know, you're still living in secret. And when you can say it out loud and actually talk about it with people who share the experience and learn from other people in that experience, you're still hiding from that. So having said that, unfortunately, AA has some of the worst statistics in the treatment of addiction. Because if you do not go to meetings more than once or twice a week, you have less than a 25% chance to actually solve your problem. Because only 25% of people who go to meetings regularly maintain sobriety. Wow. And that's uh, across the planet or in, in North that, America? That, that's just across psychiatric statistics on addiction and therapy. Wow. However... People who go to meetings regularly and focus on diet and sort of restorative supplementation, uh, neurotransmitter balancing things, sometimes, you know, some pharma, uh, pharmacological things can kind of take the edge off for a bit. And you're going to meetings and, uh, again, you're actually repairing the damage. That's 75%. That's a pretty significant jump. And if you don't want to go to meetings, as long as you're talking to a therapist or a counselor or someone in mental health and you're doing all of the stuff you would do with, you know, a clinician who's helping you restore your vitality, that's 75%. If you happen to have a meditation practice, um, and, or have access to ceremonial practices, then the statistics get even better, right? You know, with Ibogaine and everything else that we're talking about, it's 96%. That's the best in the world. Wow. I think ayahuasca is 86, but it's not really practiced in the modern world the way it's practiced properly. So you're, you're given this mind blowing experience and then left here now blown open self. And unless you have the chance to really reintegrate over months with elders and medicine people, you're kind of more likely than not to go back into other kind of addictive behavior. Cause now you're not even sure who you are and the baby birds are screaming and you're restless as you know, hell, and you've got even less of a grounded sense of how the world works and you work within it. So although it has good statistics, if you have the aftercare needed, I wouldn't say it's the ideal thing to do uh, if you're new to that kind of, you know, whole opportunity. And um, Ibogaine's the strongest one in the world. It can kill you, literally. You know, so, I mean, you actually have to have medical testing before you can use that, although it's legal in many countries. And just to be clear, it is legal. It will not, you know, you're doing something that's allowed because it's an actually, you know, medically proven, you know, uh, way to break addiction. But again, that's only going to work if you have people to talk to, to frame your experience in some kind of, um, traditional context or narrative that, that isn't freaking you out. And you're taking your vitamins and taking care of your neurotransmitters because you can't solve an organic problem 
by thinking about it, at least not easily, right? or at least not statistically. Right. So I would just, you know, throw that, that out there for anybody that start talking to people. It's about reintegrating. You don't have to commit to anything like AA or NA or, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah, there's Al-Anon and stuff for people who are focusing more on the codependent side of where they learn the behavior than just the behavior. But just be aware that it's a, uh, it's a, well, to do this properly, it's going to have to be a holistic thing. You can't just go and do some one-off, you know, big, huge, you know, scary thing and uh, be shocked into sobriety, you know. Although that's possible, I just wouldn't recommend relying on that. And honestly, that sounds like a compensatory way of approaching compensatory behavior. Okay, I've got this weird need that I, you know, have that makes me want to not feel certain things. And now I don't want to feel the feeling I have when I don't want to feel certain things. So I'm going to go and take something else that blows me completely apart, say like ayahuasca. And, and that's a really good idea if, if you have the support. But if you don't, you might just end up being addicted to random shamanic misadventures. And the danger there is now you become one of the shamans and you end up abusing all these people because you've never really got right with anything. You're just hopping from compensatory, you know, shaman shenanigans over and over. And I've seen that. And it, I didn't know. I guess I have to be careful because all these people will probably hear me say this. But uh, there are a lot of people out there who are hiding, you know, as the therapist or, or the shaman. And they're still playing out the same thing. Interesting. So there, there's no get out of jail free card. It's either I'm committed wholeheartedly 110% to resolving my unconscious need to stay unconscious or I'm going to get reels. Mm -hmm. So now we can get into the three wives because <laughs> just want to throw out some background. Okay. <laughs> three wives. So there's three wives and each of the wives has three wives because I just like patterns and call it OCD if you want, but <laughs> they just fit together that way kind of accidentally. So first of the three whys is it's usually, addiction is usually due to a life experience or a, a series of them, you know, or a, some, some part of the kind of greater theme of, of your family or, you know, the work you do or something like that. So would you say that it would be better said if it was a reaction to a life experience or an interpretation of a life ex experience? Yes, to both. This stressful thing happened and I'm using this as the popular word of the day, compensate, to compensate for how I feel about whatever just happened. And about five more layers. Right. Okay. So we're going to, un, un, I guess the new way to say it is to unpack what that means in a minute. Uh, why number two is the biochemistry. I mean, there's a lot of biochemistry to addiction that is just biochemical. And that's, I mean, obvious really, uh, but it's not just 100% what's going on. And then there's a, what I would call uh, a self-determination aspect. You're either determined to uh, start from the inside and work your way, you know, through whatever it is you're dealing with. We all have problems. I don't know anyone who doesn't have problems. And honestly, the people who say I have nothing wrong with me are usually the people who have the <laughs> one most serious <laughs> problem is that they're a little bit of a, you know, I would say a narcissist technically, but you know, they're definitely a person who's just, you know, maybe aloof or maybe dissociative in a different way. A president? Let's never speak of the person we're never to speak of again. <laughs> Come on, we got to make some reference to being Canadian. Yeah, really. <laughs> Once a podcast. Yeah. Here we are. There we go. All the way up north. So first three whys is there's going to be a life experience why. There's going to be a biochemical why. And then there's going to be some process of self-determination that uh, is incomplete. Uh, 
do you want to sort of explain a little bit more about the process of self-determination? So we're always in that process, right? So if I meet someone that I like romantically and I move forward with that, I'm determining my opportunities by expanding myself into that relationship. If, um, well, we can start there. There's, there's no order to this. So okay. let's start with self-determination. There's three whys to the self-determination and addiction. Okay. First one is it's okay, but there's a why it's okay you're doing this. And if you can't start with that, you're too broken and ashamed to even begin the conversation. So go back and keep doing what you're doing until you're ready to shake it off and accept the fact that on a, on a certain level, this has to be okay. Because if you're living in chronic self-loathing because of what you're doing, you're, that's, sorry, no, now you're back to, you're basically triggering something that's already happening to you. So when you're saying it's okay, it means um, if I'm an alcoholic and I continue to be someone who overconsumes alcohol and functional, whatever it is, mm -hmm. somewhere I'm making that choice and I'm okay with it. But you have to be okay with the why. The reasons why I'm doing that? So I'll go back a few years. I come home. Um, there's a lot going on and I'm tired and I have to calm down and I have deadlines to figure out or something. And there's this squirmy thing in me about stuff from my childhood that's eating me away inside. And I'm probably going to start, you know, occupying the space within my family in a way that's going to be a little bit maybe jangly or uh, unbalanced or compensatory. Um, so instead I'll just have a drink, right? Or some people smoke a joint, you know, or some people do something else. So again, it's, it's a compensatory choice, but I have to be able to say, it's okay that I have anxiety because that's why I can't calm down. And I have anxiety because maybe I've, I don't know, we all have anxiety when we have anxiety because we're busy. <laughs> There's too much going on. We have some big decisions to make. Um, but at a certain point, if you keep getting habituated to living as an anxious person, um, I have PTSD, not that I'm bragging about that, um, but that produces a lot of anxiety if I'm not able to hit certain kind of baseline experiences regularly enough. And at a certain point, you just get familiar with like, oh yeah, well, life is pretty jangly. Okay, life is jangly plus screaming hyenas. Okay, this is kind of weird, but here we go. <laughs> jangly screaming hyenas. And until you're actually okay with the fact that your life has kind of gotten into a corner um, and you now are compensating in, in a sense because you need to, that's got to be okay. It's okay that your life got out of control. It's not awesome. It's not that we're going to try and... Uh, maintain that and see how far off the beaten path you can take your particular, you know, you know, when your life gets off the, off the rails or whatever. Uh, it's not to say, go for it. This is awesome. It's to say, you know, this is allowed. This is in the true enough. I mean, it's, this is, this is a thing humans do, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. So until you can say, okay, it's okay. Right. On, on the level of self-determination, why I am doing this has to be allowed or else the self-loathing, the hatred, the crucial, you know, black and white of how I see myself in the world and the world around me, that's, that's, it's not even worth living in. It's just that it's just too brutal. You're too brutal in it. I mean, look what you're, how you're thinking about yourself. Okay. So that's, that's step one of the self-determination thing is, Hey, 
it you know why you're doing this is not that uncommon so stop beating yourself up especially with that stuff <laughs> right second one is you need to be, start to get really really clear with why you have to stop now if it's just cirrhosis or if it's trying to stop yourself from producing alzheimer's or you know something else in your life you know those are future concerns but they're good reasons to stop but until you start having like a list of why on the sense of negatives you have to stop who cares I would say that if you don't know why you would want to stop, you wouldn't have any motiv motivation to do so. Yeah. And then why you want to stop. Yeah. Because there's why you have to. Well, if I don't stop, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> things are going to start falling off, you know. Or, you know, that there's the positive side, which is why do I want to stop? I want to stop because I want to, I don't know, travel the world. Oh, yeah, then I need some money in the bank to buy plane tickets. And I keep spending that on my, you know, compensatory habits. So, uh. Mm. Right. So there, there's a kind of the beginning of what we call the left foot, right foot, you know, the crawling out of the pit, why I have to stop and why I want to stop. What's going to happen to me if I don't and look at your family medical history and go, Oh, does I, does that where I really want to go? Go to an AA meeting, you know, and, <clears throat> or, or, uh, volunteer to support people in a homeless shelter or at a soup kitchen and start looking around at the people who didn't find the why they want to stop soon enough. Right. Cause then the, why they had to stop went too far and, and now they, you know, maybe they have mental illness or, or something else cause they took it so far that, you know, now they broke something. So as long as you can begin to look around with some compassion at what happens to people when they don't stop or they can stop, that often motivates us to what it's going to look like and whether or not we want to have that experience ourselves and or the motivation to kind of like be compelled to maybe go and talk to that shaman about an ayahuasca ceremony, you know, with the commitment to some aftercare you know, or whatever, but until you're working with those motivational impulses and the deeper narratives of, of what guides us in life, you're essentially basically kind of standing still, you know, babe in the woods, hoping for someone to figure it out for you and no one can figure out your addiction for you. Mm. Right. Not, not even ayahuasca. I mean, she might show you how to think about this a little bit more clearly, but it's still up to you to decide. So why number one, it's gotta be okay. I mean, everyone's doing it somehow. Stop being mean to yourself. It's not helping. Why number two has kind of got two legs to it. Left foot, right foot. Native people call us two-leggeds for that reason. So you can frame a conversation in two different kinds of decision-making that are both heading in the direction you want. They're just like masculine, feminine, left, right. How this will kill you and why that might promote some kind of sense of what it would look like if you went another way. And why number three is... It's possible you have no idea who you really are and how much potential you really have. I would, I would uh, log jam here of ideas just based on what you just said. This, the story that we tell ourselves uh, compared to um, the story we could be telling ourselves. Or we could try and find out how profoundly, unexpectedly, spacious and inspiring and beautiful that story could be yeah and we all have that potential we all have so many untapped resources that um until you realize you're the greatest force of self-limitation and external limitation and internal limitation in your life 
you will not give yourself permission to pop open the can of worms of your soul, if I can put those things in the same sentence for fun, <laughs> and see what the heck it would do next if you gave it a chance. And that's where the, the things like ayahuasca and the things like huge state shift and, you know, the psychedelic experience are so effective because you go through a whole bunch of stuff with a force that has you by the short and curlies that will not give, it will not give up. I mean, once you've taken some of that stuff, you're basically going to get, well, I know that that's just a horrible thing to say out loud, but, um, you're basically in a situation where you're going to get mauled by a bear and it's not going to stop until it brings to your attention what you're truly made of in some way. Hmm. Right. And it's often going to happen in layers and you can do this with meditation. You don't need, you know, psychedelic you know plants to to figure this out that's just sort of a, a very modern efficient way to like kind of kick the can over and you know see what happens but if you can accept those three whys right why you're doing this is perfectly normal and it's a really good beginning to self-inquiry and self-growth and then you know please stop now because you're not going to get any more of continuing doing this the the mythos of you know, grinding away at this until you hit bottom, I would question that as, as a good narrative because how far down the series of bottoms that you hit, clunk, 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 kind of like a pinball falling through a pinball machine, at what point do you actually decide that's enough? Because you're the only one who's going to make that decision, right? Right. So why you're doing this is okay. Why you need to stop is, and, and why... Why you need to stop in the sense of your left foot, in the sense of dire outcome, and why you need to stop because you actually want to get married, have kids, and, you know, write poetry. I mean, that's the choice point of actually moving on, right? You're either going to move on because it's time to, you know, get out of this crazy planet, or you're going to move on because you love this crazy planet and you want to see what you can do with your part of it. Mm -hmm. So, and why number three, which doesn't really fit into the, the why questions as easily is, why, you know, in the, in the sense is, well, why haven't you given yourself permission to dig in to see who you really are yet? And that's what addiction is stopping you from doing. So why haven't you given yourself permission to just be curious enough to at least know who you are doing this to? Interesting. Right. Cause that, that's, that's the determination part. Okay. So we got life experience or we got biochemistry, two whys that are left. Uh, go with biochemistry. Okay. <laughs> so when you're, and again, we'll stick with alcohol, but it's true of, it's different, but it's true of other supplement or, or uh, addictive substances as well. They basically blow through a whole bunch of enzymes, neurotransmitters and minerals and vitamins. And they, you know, they destroy your metabolism essentially over time, which as you can see any, anyone um, again, at the soup kitchen or the homeless shelter who's been through, you know, decades of hard addiction, they all look like they've been through the same, I guess if we were all getting made up for a zombie movie, they've all got parts in the same show. Like there's certain changes that happen with certain kind of drugs that just keep happening to those people when you overdo it. So the reason why that's a good idea is when you're looking at the, uh, why addiction is so complicated biochemically is it is complicated, but those complications are the essential opportunities. Because if you realize that, say, with alcohol, you're completely deficient of the primary B1, 2, and 3s, the B5s, and 12s, all of which regulate cellular mitochondrial activity, capacity to, you know, think, be happy, and remember what you're doing, have regular emotional states, how to compensate, not compensate is the wrong word, <laughs> 
how to resiliently adapt to stressful experiences and become calm again without the external need of, of some kind of chemical to do so. Right. So obviously by taking, I don't know, a B100 two or three times a day, a multi-mineral because they, alcohol, like say with zinc, magnesium, it's pretty bad. Uh, a couple of other things. Uh, then there's neurotransmitter health. Right. So depending on the substance, it may really fiddle with your serotonin more or your dopamine more. It may do more or less damage to acetylcholine in the sense of how memory formation works. Uh, you may or may not do damage to the uh, neurotransmitter, neuropathways of different regions of the brain. You know, some people lose uh, all impulse control. You know, there's, all, there's so many different things that can happen because of the way those chemicals alter the, the function of your entire nervous system. So uh, biochemically, you know, why is this addiction or, uh, yeah, why, why are... Uh, you're doing these things to yourself biochemically, which is, again, there's a lot of vitamins, a lot of minerals. Neurotransmitters are tricky. You want to do that with somebody who can basically help you assess and, and respond. Because by trying to super rapidly up your neurotransmitters, you can make yourself potentially manic. If you're using things like cannabis uh, or in an overly intense way, you can end up with a psychotic break and end up in the, literally in a three-day hold in the psych ward because you got way too high. Uh, and then there's the biochemistry, biochemistry of the actual brain allergy to that substance. Because some people are just more, uh, say, racially or genetically uh, easily hooked into, and I mean hooked into like a fish biting some bait. Like once once you're in there, it's not the baby birds anymore. It's it's the fact that there's a solid biochemical need turned on inside your system uh, for for that process. Um, and and it, it, the chemistry of that's actually kind of complicated. But uh, with alcohol, which breaks down into acetaldehyde, it produces a metabolite that with people, again, the farther north you're from or the, the farther away from society most of your evolution has been, the more precarious that particular metabolite uh, can get you. And it's interesting that very quickly in Chinese medicine, one of the weirder things to try and explain in English is called tan. And tan is uh, often translated as phlegm. But when you look into the kind of the if you have the Western biomedical training that you would want to have to, to deal with um, human physiology in a scientific way, and then you look at Chinese medical terminology, because you already have that background, your natural translation of tan would be secondary metabolite, right? And there's tons of different kinds of secondary metabolites, like free radicals and other things. So I just think it's interesting that Chinese medicine thousands of years ago understood implicitly because of what they saw in the world that your body was producing something from something that was doing the thing, hmm. right? So now, now we know if you have too much inflammation, there's too much oxidative stress and the free radicals change your uh, molecular ions to something else and, you know, your health can go sideways that way. So just not a little, little props to Chinese medicine for, you know, having a sense of this uh, without understanding the chemistry really all that well. Cool. So when we get into biochemistry again, you just need to support your body with the right kind of, you know, vitamins and minerals. You have to balance out whatever you've done to your neurotransmitters and you have to make sure that on the level of, uh, just natural kind of, uh, allergies, food allergies, things that fiddle with your histamines and, uh, they affect your neurotransmitters as well. Right. So certain allergies are actually addictions in themselves. Oh, wow. 
right? Because you just keep going back to it. I mean, there's a thing in gluten, uh, an exomorphine, uh, which is as addictive as morphine, but you get it from bread. <laughs> and a lot of people, when they try and get off of gluten, they hit day four and day four is the number, like the hardest day for, you know, clearance of a uh, physical discomfort around addiction. You just see them popping, popping up toasters back on the counter, you know, <laughs> clunk, give me the, give me the toast and give me know. some bagels. Yeah. Or, or bagels, right? So it's, it's just to give us permission to go, wow, okay, the chemistry of this is complicated, but it's actually in a way, uh, easy to set up a protocol in which you could, you know, repair yourself. And when I go back, if we go back in the conversation, when I was talking about AA having a 25, 23%, uh, stat and then taking someone who's doing something to connect socially and repair themselves metabolically, they get like 73 to 75%. So that's why the chemistry is so important because it has such a profound effect on the statistics and the likelihood of a person getting well. Hmm. I mean, it, it has the best statistics of anything that isn't a shamanic, you know, potentially illegal substance. Right. So we've talked about how self-determination is important. We've talked a little bit about why the chemistry is super important. Third one is, you know, essentially uh, why given your life experiences, you are so um, traumatized to require a compensatory crutch. Like what has happened in your life? And it usually there's three whys to this, of course. Uh, one is the trauma. Why has the trauma in your life affected you? Is it because of how you took it or how bad it was or because of, you know, the the number of years you suffered it or whatever? And then there's just effectively loneliness, hmm. right? Humans do not do well alone. You want to, you know, accelerate every psychiatric disorder, especially addictive behavior, put people alone. I mean, I know we're not rats, but the number one study on addiction with rats and cocaine was based on how alone the rat was. You put a, a rat alone with a little water bottle of, you know, diluted cocaine and no other rats, that rat will literally lick the cocaine bottle until it dies. Wow. And we think of rats as kind of like, I don't know, little biker monster, you know, things that are pretty badass in some way, but no, they need friends. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Even rats need friends. Because you take the same rats, genetically, you know, bred rats, and you put them in a rat village with a bottle of cocaine, you know, diluted in water, and they might walk by once in a while, and then they just get bored with it because it stops them from interacting from the rest of the rats, or they become the weird stone rat, and who wants to hang out with that guy? So, <laughs> <clears throat> so you know, separation again, these substances being the great separators that they are, well, I think loneliness is a pretty good you know, definition of being separate too much. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah. that's a huge thing. And nowadays with, you know, um, even if you have a helicopter parent who's always there to make sure their precious kid doesn't have an experience that isn't, you know, on the menu of okay, you usually also have the kid parked in front of a computer or sitting there with a tablet in their lap. So, you know, you think, oh, I'm such a good parent. I'm always around. I'm always available. But as far as they're concerned, it's me and this flat piece of plastic, you know, so... <laughs> You know, and there's a lot of people who are actually saying, you know, the biggest problem we have as uh, changing socialized beings is our families are too small. And I'm not saying that as like, you know, screw the planet, let's just breed ourselves into, you know, the abyss. It's just to say we haven't actually corrected our socialization around smaller family units yet. Corrected in... Well, if you grew up around 12 kids, you have, like, it isn't whether or not you get a chance to talk to your parents. It's whether or not you get five seconds alone to go to the bathroom. <laughs> before somebody else purchased through the door you know or whatever but then then there's there's a very different relationship with the anticipation to connect 
Right. Because if the anticipation is never connect except through computer, you're already addicted to the computer. Hmm. Right. And if it's got a scrolling blue lit screen, well, <laughs> oops. <laughs> Damn you, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> or whoever else figured that part out. So we have trauma, we have loneliness, and then this is a hard one. We have self-loathing. And I mean, these are the people who are not only going to be like, be more likely to be addicted, but there are the people who are likely to have taken either a, a, a knife and cut themselves, a cigarette and burn themselves. Uh, or actually in my case, I used, um, um, butter knives to carve Chinese characters into myself. Ouch. They're kind of cool. I don't know if you've ever seen these before. <laughs> like showing off his badass Chinese character, self-loathing, you know, PTSD tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm trying to make light of this because it's, you know, obviously uh, that's a pretty hard place to end up. Um, so it, it's just a really important thing that when you're looking at self-loathing, what you're dealing with is a person who has survived not only trauma, but malevolent, punitive, like overwhelming trauma. Like it's one thing to get mauled by a bear. It's another thing to have the bear sit there across from you between the maulings and just, you know, try and make, you know, make it seem like this is... So it's okay, man. This is just how we do it. Mm. And you're like squirming in the corner and like, eh, don't worry about it. Here, have a cookie <laughs> or whatever. And then the bad thing happens again. So when you're, when you're being traumatized in a, what they would call, um, it's got a funny name nowadays, ritualized kind of violence, uh, you know, or molestations or other things, you as a person didn't just get mauled by a bear. You, you got basically tortured by a malevolent conscious dangerous, you know, force in the world. And there's a lot of them out there, mm -hmm. right? So those are the things in, in whatever combination are going to promote the most addictive behavior in people. And it's interesting when I've gone to talk to counselors or therapists and stuff, psychotherapists, I don't think I've ever talked to a psychiatrist as a patient in my life, although that'd be a fun thing to do, I think. Um, Within five minutes, they always say, okay, well, Michael, you definitely have PTSD because you talk about all the worst things that have ever happened to you and they're pretty bad uh, as if you're a newscaster and it's just somebody else. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> right. But the, you know, the, the reason I bring that up is that, um, also talking to those people, they're like, you know, until you can actually recognize that, um, there's a part of you that's still trying to run away or escape know, the, the possibility of that kind of environment ever happening again, or, and this was interesting when this came up in my life, or that you're going to be the person who recreates this for your kid or your children or your family or somebody else, that that's, that's where most people get the most hung up. Hmm. Is that, you know, is, is this ever going to happen again? Or am I going to be the person to do part two or part next? And that's where a lot of people's addiction come from. Because right? again, talking to therapists or counselors in, in my life, it's like, well, clearly you, you know, you're dealing with this and, uh, any addictive pattern you have is very likely to be trying to protect other people from what you think you might do. And that was a huge insight for me. Cause I was just like, I would never hurt anybody. And they're like, how do you, how can you be sure? <laughs> it's like, I, no, I know myself like, well, if that was true, how, how many other things would have been different in your life in that way? So, and I'm sharing my experience just for any of the listeners who might be feeling like, oh, this probably wouldn't work for me because, you know, I'm on some crazy outlier of, um, of the world. Um, I, I would say in, in maybe this is going to sound arrogant, but I think any of us can come back from this. Hmm. 
right? But you have to be willing to start talking to people who care about you and who you're, you care about, even if they're going to look at you sideways because you got slippery feet. Like that's, it's okay. It's, it's step one. You're, you're doing something that a lot of people are doing. You're just doing it with a lot more momentum, you know, and you can turn it around. The, uh, the word connection just keeps ringing in my ears based on everything you're saying. All these different whys <coughs> all just appear to be, um, I picture like an old telephone operator switchboard. You're either connected or you're not. Yeah, you there know? you go. Yeah. You know, they're either plugged into something that's actually, uh, um, promote some kind of level of awareness based on, you know, you know, the bad thing is that the other end of the line and that thing's actually plugged in or it's not. It's actually plugged into you and you know it or it's disconnected. Um, you've actually got community at the other end of that line and there you are and you're actually plugged into it or not. Yeah, and I think that's why cults work. Hmm. Because people feel so disassociated or disconnected or well, like I think alone think, or... I think it starts there. I mean, you're the weird kid in high school and, you know, maybe you have mildly affluent you know, background or whatever. So the, the typical reasons why you feel a bit alienated don't really make sense. Right. You know, so now it seems like a deeper wound because you should have been one of the more cool kids. And then you meet some people who uh, show you whatever it is they show you. If it's some kind of meditation, some kind of dance, some kind of guru, some kind of, um, you know, way to participate in ceremony or something. Um, and it adds meaning and experience and connection and it's finally fed you the vitamin you were missing your whole life, you will give away your entire family's inheritance to have that. Mm -hmm. Even if in five years you realize the entire thing was, you know, run by a sexual predator who happened to like Rolls Royces or something. And made funny Kool-Aid. Or, or the, you know, obviously things can go as, as I mean, if, if things go so sideways that your belief that the ultimate connection you're going to get out of life is to go and die and join people on a spaceship to another world, it's better than this one. I mean, that's a really loudly, diagnostically precise narrative. <laughs> that's, uh, to use your words, that's a pretty big, bright dashboard light. Yeah. 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 Um, this has been a really long podcast. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh. And I think um, the reason why is because you've been, you, because you're so connected to the subject of addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just want to say uh, thanks for being so open to the whole idea of sharing what this is from the perspective of, uh, I know something about it because I know something about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I, I, I couldn't talk for nearly two hours about addiction. Okay, we're going to have to get a clock in here so I can see what well, time I got, it is. I got the clock right I there. I can't see it. <laughs> but um, anyway, it, it just it just strikes me that this is something that, uh, you know, it's like a Hollywood movie. I want the happy ending at the end, right? Well, the happy ending was where we started. I mean, the, just the fact that you could actually cozy up to the microphone today and talk about addiction for two hours mm -hmm. um, in a helpful, um, you know, introspective and clinical way uh, maybe with a little bit of humor, a little bit of, um, shamanism, whatever it is that you bring to the mic is, um, a testament to the fact that, you know, addiction is something that can be dealt with in a good way. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you were about to jump down that tube, <laughs> you said, okay, give me a bunch of this, a bunch of that. I want these kind of guys. I want this kind of parent. I want that kind of mom. Right. You know, <laughs> like, I wasn't sure what tube you were talking about, but now, now I get it. that tube, the tube, the, the tube of life yeah. before you entered, entered this reality. Right. Yeah. Thanks mom. 
yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, uh, thank, uh, uh, thank whomever, whatever, God, goddess, whatever it is you want to thank for the, um, uh, the experience that you've had for you to be able to articulate this in the, in the way that you've had, right? Yeah, and if you're listening to this, it's because you're ready to learn um, what other tools, what other magic shoes, what other, what other narratives you might need in your life to keep moving, hopefully and curiously, in, in another direction, a new one. Mm-hmm. And when I work with people around this, the first thing we talk about is curiosity. Right. Cause that's what, that, that one made, made the biggest difference for me. It's like, well, just give yourself a period of time to find out what it's going to feel like without that stuff. I mean, I mean, if you really have a bad enough experience, you can always just go and get it. <laughs> but can you commit to a period of time to find out what it's like without it? And that, that was the hardest part, I think, is that at a certain point, um, and again, I think, and I never really went that far with this, obviously, but, um, because of my ancestry, the physical discomfort of stopping was way, way worse considered what I was doing with my life than I think it would have been for most other people because I wasn't even using that much of anything in right. a sense of like huge volumes of, you know, bad chemistry. Um, but once I started to actually be curious enough to get through those few first days, I was like, okay, this is silly. I mean, I have way more resources and I'm way more conscious than all of this. I'm just afraid that it's going to really be bad because that's what the mind, you know, projects into the future is more pain. Mm -hmm. But once you realize, no, it's not actually going to be that bad. You just need to be curious about what it's going to be. That's going to be different. That's the big freedom for most people is just the willingness to say, well, let's find out what, what happens. Like the worst case scenario, you're just going to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Right. And best case scenario, you're going to learn deeply how profoundly, resourceful you are and passionate and loving and, you know, uh, how meaningful this whole thing really is. And I think that's what you lose with, with those things. Cause you really, I mean, it, it, I, I read this recently that, um, and I think it was ibuprofen, but there was some chemistry that, you know, if you take it, they could prove that it stops you from being able to feel empathy. And I'm pretty sure most addictive chemistry does that too. Wow. Because you can't care about anybody else. I mean, if you're hiding vodka and wherever your friend hid their bottles, I mean, it's, that's, it's not even empathy so far to the room at that point. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's, but, it's, it's still in the, the trunk of your car with your luggage. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's behind the recycling. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's where I found the one. I'm like, how did this bottle get here? I, I don't even drink. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just, just saying that, you know, when people get to that level of, of what you might call dysfunction, yeah. uh, you don't have empathy for yourself, never mind anybody else. Huh. Um, is there more that you want to say about this? I mean, I, I think we could probably talk uh, more around a bunch of these ideas in depth, but do you want to explore that on, on another podcast? Uh, well, I, think, I think if we were to do this more it would be another podcast where I, maybe hopefully depending on what our listeners want to know more about like mm-hmm. it would be interesting to walk through maybe the top three addictions and the biochemist biochemical uh, protocols that we use to support people to recover from them and why because that would definitely be a massive geek out on how everything is connected and how you really do have to you know have all those little uh neural pathways working or else it's yeah. You just think about like a giant city that has, you know, half the roads all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> it's traffic jams ahoy. 
I'm going to give you a little bit of a burn here, and that might actually be a short podcast. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's get a clock, Mr. Producer. And <laughs> hey, this has been good stuff. Oh, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, whatever it is that, uh, that, that you're laying down, whoever's at the other end of that microphone is certainly still picking it up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's all good. Um, anything more that you wanted to say around the ideas of addiction? If you are a person who has any felt sense relationship with what blessings mean, I hold you in prayer and blessing. Hmm. And if not, I'm doing it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So there. (laughs) So take that. Take that. I'll pray Uh, for you anyway. (laughs) I'm going to pray for you whether you believe me or not. And I'm not even religious, so... Figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to listen to a few more podcasts in order to figure all that out, I think. Uh, I think if you get far enough into quantum physics, you don't need religion anymore. You're just like, well, thought forms exist, so I'm going to send good thoughts out. Uh, Well, no, I was thinking about (laughs) having having them uh, further identify and understand how you think. By listening to more of ours. I was trying oh, to, yeah, please, please. Yeah, trying, trying to plug us there. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a whole library in there. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not all this long. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I to pull that. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a little knife. Uh, great conversation today, Michael. Um, this has been episode 53 of Fusion House Radio. <laughs> 53, 54, and 55. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 53-ish of Fusion Health Radio. Uh the, uh, what, what, what do we call it here? The three whys of, why, why do we get so giddy? Maybe it's like all the oxygen gets sucked up out of the room. No, I think maybe we're just like compensatory addicted people going, we're done. <laughs> Woo-hoo, we're out of here. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll try that again. Straight face. This has been episode 53 of the Fusion Health Radio podcast. Uh, the three whys of addiction. Uh, I'm Anthony Santa. That guy is Dr. Michael Smith. And uh, we would invite you to listen to other fine podcasts out there in the world, especially ours. Um, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can support us through Patreon. You can find us wherever you find your other podcasts, through iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean and TuneIn and all those other sort of great things. The internet's kind of crazy that way. Uh, if you like what you heard, please share it. If you didn't like what you heard, please tell us. We want to know either way. Uh, you can get in touch with Michael. There's more of him to learn and understand uh, the things that he's doing uh, with his uh, medical practice. Integrative Health Solutions. That's with an S on the end. IntegrativeHealthSolutions.ca. Yep. Because we're Canadian, eh? Canadians. Yep. Um, I think we're done. I think so. Yeah. Blessings. Blessings. Thanks for tuning in, folks. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.